0: Blog Talk radio.
1: Welcome to the Pond Hunter Broadcast from the Under the Sea Radio Show on Blog Talk Radio. The Pond Hunter, in the pursuit of all things aquatic. Take a look into the world of koi ponds, water gardens, and the lifestyles of the aquatically obsessed. Meet the pros, hobbyists, and cover some no-nonsense pond advice straight from the field. The Pond Hunter. In the pursuit of all things aquatic, here's your host, koi pond and water garden expert, Mike Gannon.
0: Hey everybody, hey everybody welcome. welcome to the Pond Hunter Radio Broadcast.
2: Thank you for making it tonight to the show. I'm very happy to be here with all of you tonight, happy to share this time with you and with Thanksgiving only one week away, it is time to share. It's time to be with friends and loved ones. And you guys are my friends. So welcome to Episode 19 of the Pond Hunter Radio Broadcast. Uh, I'm Mike Gannon. I'm your host. And boy, do we have a good show for you tonight. You picked a very good night to tune in. Your timing is impeccable. But remember, you can listen anytime. All previous episodes are archived for your listening pleasure. You can listen from your smartphone, your device of choice, and I try to make it easy for you. You can find the archived episodes of The Pond Hunter on blogtalkradio.com slash thepondhunter. Or check the show out on iTunes. You can download it from iTunes. There's lots of good listening there for the Aquatically Obsessed um
0: but those are those
2: shows and we are now in this show. So, this show you're listening to right now, you can call into or you can follow along and message me on Facebook if you don't want to call in. If you do want to call in, the number is 914-805-4557. If you don't want to call in, the phone number doesn't much matter. But uh we'd be happy to hear from you tonight. So, let's get down to business here tonight's show. We're going to be talking about uh, water gardening and aquatic plants. Think it's too cold on this frigid November evening to talk water gardening? Then the polar vortex has gotten you down a bit. Get with the man! Lots of water gardening thoughts are going to be here tonight. They will warm your soul. And there's no bad time of year for this stuff, especially when you have a guest like I do tonight. Tonight, we're going to be joined by Kelly Billing. Kelly is a water garden and aquatic plant expert, and she's going to be here with us, sharing her knowledge and passion of water gardening, spreading the good news, spreading some love, spreading some water gardening love to all of us. Kelly is an author of a couple of books on water gardening, like um, The Lotus, Know It and Grow It, and The Water Gardener's Bible. And she's also in charge of sales and marketing for Maryland Aquatics, Uh, Maryland Aquatics is a major aquatic plant grower and distributor in Maryland, and she's with us tonight. She's going to be coming on in just a little while. The number, again, if you want to call in and talk with Kelly, if you have any questions or anything, um, this is the woman to speak with. The number, again, is 914-803-4557. And let's talk some water gardening. No? No? Come on. Uh, I hope you're all doing well tonight. The weather here in the U.S. has been insane with record low temperatures, record snowfall in many areas. I'm in the Northeast. I'm in New Jersey. I'm seeing areas in New York that got hit with five feet of snow, 65 inches, more than five feet of snow over the last couple of days. It's pretty crazy. Um, But that's winter, you know, even though technically it's still fall, that's, that's winter. And um, and the holidays are just about here. I mean, man, time really flies. Thanksgiving next week, Christmas just around the corner. Wow. But, uh, you know, what? I love this time of year. And I really don't mind the cold too much. I can't really imagine living anywhere with, uh, that it wouldn't get cold for at least a portion of the year. I've kind of really grown to love this time of year. Not that it couldn't be a little shorter. I would definitely take a shorter Winter season. I'm not going to fight anybody on that, but I always try to get a, a little warm getaway during the winter anyway. But uh, I would always love to live where I get some cold weather. Uh, when the cold comes to town, it's an interesting change. It's it's a drastic change in my area, uh, the Northeast United States, especially if you think you know. Just eight weeks ago, my pond was in pretty much full glory, blooming plants fish eating like crazy, everything. It was it was awesome. And it's gone now. The cold has settled in. I got ice in my pond already. Not completely, but I got ice on it. And, uh, and I love it. You know what? This time of year, there's really clear winter skies at night when the stars really seem to shine, like really shine and sparkle. I love that. I love the feeling when cold air fills your lungs and snow crunches underfoot with every step. And who doesn't love to sit and watch snowfall? It comes down in so many different patterns. No two snowstorms are ever the same or snowflakes. And I can watch snow come down for hours. I think pretty much everybody can. Even when you know it's a major storm, it's it's always just mesmerizing to sit and watch snow coming down. And I also love the sound insulation that fresh snowfall gives, where everything has that hush, that quiet. It's awesome. And of course, enjoying our ponds during the winter time of year too. There's no reason you can't get out and enjoy your pond. I know it's not the same as during the regular real pond season, but you don't have to completely ignore your ponds. Um watching a waterfall course its way through ice and snow, it's it's beautiful. And observing fish in their state of torpor That's pretty cool, too. I mean, they're not doing much, but just seeing that that behavior and just the the amazingness of those animals to endure the conditions that they are in, really low temperatures and everything, it's, it's an amazing time of year to enjoy your pond. Lots of pond observing can happen, and you just learn more about your pond. Things you see this time of year. Um, you know, somehow translate into other times of year. You can start seeing patterns after a while. And, you know, it's just something that I always encourage people, definitely get into enjoying your pond during the winter as much as you can. And on some coming up episodes, we will definitely get into some winter pond care tips. Uh, we've already done winter prep, but now the winter is here. We'll get into some tips on on winter pond care. Coming up on one of these episodes of the Pond Hunter radio broadcasts. But yeah, I mean this is one of my favorite um times and one of my favorite wintertime pond dynamics is when ice forms. Just just a very thin, kinda of completely transparent layer of ice over the pond. I love that. It's when you can still see the fish. The water is really clear. And I love that. My my pond water is is clear all year round, but there's something about winter water clarity that's just amazingly clear, like gin, like crystal, crystal clear. I don't use that description many times a year, but I'll go for it in winter. It's it's beautiful. You know, um, one of my pieces of advice as part of winter pond care um, is to start your de-icer just at that time. The the first morning or day that you see that thin layer of ice on your pond, as lovely as it is, it's time to install the de-icer. It's time to install the aerator, too. And um, I can't really say enough how important I think it is for every pond owner to own an aerator. And some people say, well, w- what do you mean by an aerator? I have customers ask me, <clears throat> and it, it basically is the same thing as in a fish tank, those bubblers, but... Obviously, you want to use ones that are meant for outdoors and to be able to handle outdoor conditions, winter conditions, rainy conditions, hot conditions, and they're strong enough to um, pump pretty deep down into a pond. Even though you're not keeping your air diffusers very deep in your pond during the winter, you can use an aerator at different times of the year. So it's time to get those things installed, and, um, you know, they're, they, the aerators are especially helpful – in winter months, and they make excellent de-icers. So, you know, um, I actually think it's important to point out that when we're talking about de-icing a pond, it's really not about the ice. Ice, by nature, is not inherently bad for a pond. A pond can have ice over it all winter and still do just fine during the regular season. You folks up in Canada know that. And other areas where it gets a lot colder, for longer periods of time, fish can do just fine with ice. What we're really talking about, which makes de-icing a pond something of a misnomer, uh, what we're really talking about is degassing the pond and oxygenating the pond. Ice is all right. Don't be hating. Uh, it's the gas that needs to be released from the pond, and ice just makes it a bit. More complicated, but not impossible. Thick and heavy ice cover on a pond can trap the gases and keep other gases out. So gases like ammonia in the water need to be released. Gases like oxygen from the atmosphere need to get in. Uh, So we need to keep some of that water open. We need a good amount of surface area of the pond water exposed. A hole in the ice, like a de-icer provides, helps make that process more efficient. Ammonia out oxygen in, but the aerator the aerator, is super efficient at releasing and introducing those gases it or um, it's efficient at gaseous exchange, which is the i suppose proper terminology for that, and the amount of surface area needed for good gaseous exchange can be reduced with an aerator because the bubbling action of the aerator breaks the surface of the pond up which in turn increases surface area. So it's releasing ammonia better and introducing oxygen better. And, um, you know, sometimes it'll even get cold enough, like when we have single-digit weather or negative digits, that the ice just can't be kept open. Um, That's when the aerator really shines because it can still perform gaseous exchange. You may even see an ice dome over where the bubbling action is occurring. And um, that's a good thing. To see because it, it tells you that underneath that ice the gases are still being exchanged to a lesser degree yes but it's still happening the ice covering is not air, airtight there are typically gaps in the ice around the edges of a pond if you have rock work and you look at where the ice comes right up to the rock work it usually almost actually doesn't touch the rock work so there's a gap so there is opportunity for gases to escape and be introduced so, you know, in that sense, the aerator is still doing its job, maybe less efficient with heavy ice cover and snow, but typically with a good air pump, efficient enough, and certainly much better than a floating deicer. icer uh, De-icer needs more surface area open to do its job. It's a passive, uh, gaseous exchange system, whereas I would kind of describe an aerator as a much more active or aggressive Uh, gaseous exchange
3: piece of equipment.
2: I think um, if I had to choose one or the other, I'd I'd always go with an aerator. And aerators are just, they're multi-purpose too. So, I mean, they really come in handy. But my professional advice to you, my expert, dare I say, advice, is to use both. That's right. Both an aerator and de-icer I like that extra insurance. I like giving my customers that insurance. And if anything happened that one item or a piece of equipment failed, you have the other one to get you through. And if you live in an area like I do, which is Zone 5, by the way, say Zone 5 or lower, um, you know it can get pretty brutal. So both pieces of equipment are recommended, and there is safety in redundancy. And who wants to chance the lives of their, their fish, their pets? Their family members on not having something as simple as an aerator or deicer, yet very overlooked pieces of equipment. So come on, people. Um, the aerator deicer combo is important for winterizing your pond. And remember to winterize your water features like fountains and such as well. And you can utilize deicers and aerators effectively with water features too. And then we are talking about de-icing because gaseous exchange really doesn't matter in a fountain, especially if you're not keeping fish. It's just decorative. Um, And on the last Pond Hunter radio broadcast, we really got into fountains and and water features. Um, I had a really interesting guest on, especially if you're aquatically obsessed. We left behind the Koi Ponds and Water Gardens just for an episode, just one, um, and Rough Fitter was my guest, and his company is a fountaineer based out of Lexington, Kentucky, and um, Russ designs and engineers world-class water features. It was a real interesting discussion, really was. Um, We got into the history of fountains a bit. I talked about Greek and Roman fountains of antiquity, the human compulsion to display and shape water, even a bit of fountain trivia, the highest, the biggest, the oldest, the most expensive fountains. Can you name them? If you were listening, you could name them, right? But uh, today, but, but really, we're focused on today's fountains, modern day fountains and their technology. Today's fountains and water features, modern fountains and water features, can give the fountains of antiquity a run for their money when it comes to amazing displays. Our modern water features oftentimes come with light shows and laser shows, music, choreographed dancing waters. Um, we're able to shoot water 800 or more feet into the air. So when it comes to quote-unquote water shaping, we can actually do that now. We can shape water to look like a horse, like a face, stars, shamrocks, or, or practically any shape you can think of. We can do some pretty amazing stuff. We can project images onto water displays now. We can watch movies on water displays. It's amazing we some smart cookies. However, the ancient fountain designers did work with gravity, and their fountains still operate today. So uh, I'm sure we've probably modernized the mechanics of many of them, but any of today's amazing fountains and water features would be nothing without electricity. So you got to give it to the ancient fountain designers that their designs are still relevant. And who knows if our modern fountain displays will will be here hundreds of years later but it's pretty likely the ancient fountains still will be. Fountains are just plain cool. It was a really good show. Anyway, you can hear all about world-class fountains and water features from that episode and learn a bit about Russ's company. You can check out Russ Sitter on Twitter at The Fountain He's also on Facebook, and his website is thefountaineer.com. And that was episode 18 of the Pond Hunter radio broadcast. Check the archives or iTunes. Um, that was the last show. The next show... We got On the next show, like tonight's show, we're going to be continuing with the slant on water gardening. I'm going to have Charles B. Thomas on the next Han Hunter radio broadcast for episode 20, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you have been checking out all the episodes. Episode 20 came up real quick. Um, Anyway, Charles B. Thomas is going to be my guest, and I'm super stoked for this. If you're listening to the show and you don't know who Charles is, you better be sure to tune in. Charles Thomas has a lot to do with our current day enjoyment, your enjoyment of the hobby today. Um, He, in my opinion, really helped push this hobby slash lifestyle forward in the United States and, and keep it alive in modern times. And Charles and I are going to talk about some water gardening history, more modern and more recent history of how the industry and hobby developed here in the U.S., Of course, water gardening has been around really for thousands of years, Uh, but we'll be focusing on its development here in the U.S., and I really think this is going to be a fascinating show. And uh, if you enjoy history like myself, you will enjoy water gardening and um, pond keeping like I know you do, then you're going to like the show. Charles will be here December 3rd. If you want to know about where you came from, this show is for you. If you want to know where you're going, this show is for you. Water gardening has a fascinating and very long history, but the hobby's history here in the U.S. is still relatively young, so please join Charles B. Thomas and myself while we wade into the recent history of water gardening hobby and industry here in the U.S. Don't you miss it. So uh, what's happening in the pond world? Winter is here, no doubt and events are still going on, but not many, not many. Um, Pond Building 101 with American Aquascapes is taking place on Saturday, November 22nd at 10 a.m. until 4 p.m. This event is for people who are interested in learning more about the process of building a beautiful outdoor water feature for your home or business. Mike Wheelie, Mike Waterfall Wheelie, owner of American Aquascapes, And professional pond builder for over 18 years will be demonstrating the process of building an ecosystem pond and answering questions about the process. Attendees will be provided with lunch, a T-shirt, a pond information kit, as well as a special gift. And if you're interested in attending, please RSVP to the event. Contact Piedmont Feed and Garden Center to officially register for this event. The cost is $35 per person. Spaces are limited. This will take place at Piedmont Feed and Garden Center in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I like Chapel Hill. That's a nice place. I've been down there. Um, For info or to reserve your spot, please call Nikki at 919-942-7848. That's Pond Building 101 with American Aquascapes. Remember, um, if you're a group, club, association, business who'd like to get their events announced, for free, let me know. I'm happy to get the news out. Um, so some shout-outs. Tonight I'd like to give a shout-out to all of the Pond Pros out in Phoenix, Arizona right now who are attending the InfoTanza event and those who helped with the Ponditat for Humanity project. I saw photos of the finished product project. It, it looked really nice. What a cool project and event. So hey, Pond Pros, I hope you are all listening to the show and having fun out there in Phoenix. But not too much fun. It is a professional event, after all. Uh, that's InfoTanza happening as we speak. Um, and I also want to say a real quick um, acknowledgement to, acknowledgment to um, a friend that passed away. Um, Megan, you went way too soon, way, way too young. And uh, you will always be in our thoughts, you'll always be remembered, uh, you'll always be missed. And heaven has a beautiful new angel. Rest in peace, Megan, and God bless. And another friend, too. I mean, it's so sad. Uh, we never met, but we talked a lot. Um, she passed away, and I'd like to express my condolences to the family of Mary and Cronin. She was, a, uh, she was aquatically obsessed, for sure. And I'm sorry she lost her fight. And my thoughts are with you all, Mary, and rest in peace. And uh, both of you in better places now, but... Sad losses. Um so let's um let's have a quick word from our sponsor, Full Service Aquatics, and stick around because we have Kelly Billing coming up in um just a moment.
4: Do you love your pond? Full Service Aquatics, Water Garden, and Koi Pond experts can give you a pond you can live with. Full Service Aquatics. An award-winning water garden, koi pond, and water feature design and installation firm has been creating amazing aquatic environments since 1995. Got waterfall? Full Service Aquatics can make your old waterfall or pond look like new with our waterfall, koi pond, and water garden renovation and repair services. Visit FullServiceAquatics.com or call 908-277-6000 to speak with a Full Service Aquatics pond professional today. That's FullServiceAquatics.com or 908-277-6000. Full Service Aquatics, a pond you can live with. Visit LoveYourPond.com.
2: Full-service aquatics, baby, a master-level certified aquascape contractor, bringing the water garden pond-keeping lifestyle to New Jersey since 1995. We're coming up on 20 years of pond services for the New Jersey area. Come celebrate 20 years with full-service aquatics in 2015, a pond you can live with, a water garden you will love. Um, Water gardening is one of those pursuits that can take a lifetime and still not be fulfilled. I guess with water gardening and and human civilization being so integrated, there's simply more than a lifetime of information to try to find, digest, and utilize. So water gardening information can be very specialized, or it can be very generalized. It could even vary from culture to culture on what is important or desirable in water gardening. Water gardening, I'm sure, began more as a way to eat as a way to put food on our tables in the quest to keep ourselves from starving we found ways to grow food even in flooded areas or areas that were intentionally flooded it was probably um just a pleasant byproduct that the early aquatic plant farmers were graced by a nice looking plant too i could see early water gardeners or farmers really saying you know hey harry this lotus sure is delicious, and it happens to have a nice flower to boot. So whether it was rice plants of the eastern cultures of Asia or the taro plants of the ancient Hawaiians, uh, the decorative aspect of water gardening was only a secondary consideration. Nowadays, for the American water gardener, cultivating food from our water gardens is the secondary consideration, with the decorative aspect being the primary consideration. Uh, Today's American and first-world water gardeners want a beautiful water garden, not necessarily a bountiful water garden. Some people wouldn't even consider eating something from their backyard pond, and I'd say they're missing out. Uh, Water gardens can come in many shapes and sizes, container gardens, teacup water gardens, bathtub gardens, all sorts of containers can be water gardens, and they don't need to be very big. Therefore, water garden success comes in many shapes and sizes, And the choices of plants that are available to today's water gardeners are broad. Uh, We no longer have to collect our own water garden plants locally or grow them ourselves from seed. The aquatic plant industry allows us to choose from tropical and hardy plants. We can keep plants we'd never find in our part of the world right in our own backyards. Uh, We can buy plants that are well-established and create a beautiful water feature or water garden quickly and it does not take years for this process anymore but the trick is to keep your water garden beautiful for years and years and to do that of course we need information more information than the stock person at the home depot aquatic plant display can give us so we need experts but we still need to know how these plants uh how to keep them healthy happy and that's where the aquatic plant experts Come in very handy. And my guest tonight is an expert not only at keeping aquatic plants happy and healthy, but she also works for one of the largest aquatic plant distributors in the US. And she's an author of two books on water gardening. She's a frequent speaker at industry events and a sought after guest for shows like this. Kelly Billing is with us tonight to talk water gardening advice. And uh, I met Kelly recently at an industry event. I've been following her on Facebook for some time. I've read her books. Well, I've read one. I'm working on the other. And uh, I'll be reading that other one real quick, uh, real soon, um, so they get the chance. But you can find Kelly on Facebook, her small business page on Facebook at well, which is, as well, which is facebook.com slash nalumbo2218. And we have
4: her here with us tonight. Kelly, are you on the line? I am here. Hey, Kelly, how you doing? I'm well, and you?
2: I'm doing just fine. Nice and warm I'm... inside. I keep looking out at the, the ice on my pond going, man, <laughs> it got
0: cold.
4: Yeah, I had to break some ice this morning because my leaves are just falling and I'm already frozen, so all of my leaves that should be in my skimmer were frozen in the ice.
2: Yeah, so. it's amazing how quick uh, winter just creeps out it doesn't even creep up I shouldn't even say that just it's like it just turns into winter overnight and especially this year I just hope it doesn't stick around for the rest of the winter I hope we get at least a warming trend a little bit later yeah
4: we had such a beautiful summer and an an exceptional fall Um, yeah winter just came in hard and fast
2: yeah it doesn't want us getting too spoiled (laughs) (laughs) so
4: you know I've been following your stuff for
2: a while I'm a fan and I was pretty psyched to finally meet you in person at uh, Shindemonium, which is a, an industry event back in October. What did you think of that
4: event? Shindemonium was probably in, in of industry events that I've attended. Um, what Steve did, how he motivated everyone, um, his openness, his um, you know willingness to share was um something that has attracted me to this industry from the beginning. I just must say that the industry as a whole is a lot of really great people um willing to share it's it's we' all have the same goals um but what Steve did um from the business perspective, and you know when you see so many people struggling um you know to earn a living to define their value um to figure out you know, they're there are people who have a creative sense and it's very difficult for them at times, um, you know, to take care of the business end. So that event was just second to none in in that regard. It was it was awesome.
0: Yeah.
2: I they I agree. They did a, a spectacular job of organizing the event to make it enjoyable. It flowed nicely. The information was awesome. And you're right. You know, the, the business portion of it is is so important. And um, this is not an easy industry to work in. It's not easy to make a living um, doing what we do. But for those of us who can, it's an awesome industry. I love doing what I do. It's, it, this is really yeah. a great, great industry, great people, like you said, and, um, I don't know if it's unique, because I've never really worked in any other industry, but it's pretty um, pretty amazing how willing people are to share information with each other and to try to help each other out.
4: Yeah, I did work in corporate America for years, and I can tell you this is, is another planet compared to that, and it's why I love it. Um, everyone is driven by passion of the same thing. I um yeah. went to art school, and one of the things that changed not long after I left there was that artists often can't earn a living. the starving artist syndrome, and you could equate that to you know contractors they're they're building something beautiful they are in okay. in fact artists they just have a different media, and you know the the business sense of it doesn't come as natural as you know stone placement and growing things so what steve did is is really you know he opened up himself and uh you know shared what he's learned for the betterment of the industry and that is something that in 30 years almost of doing this that everyone i've come across is willing to share that way which makes it exceptional
2: it really does It really does. It's it's an amazing thing. And uh, we're very fortunate to be in such an industry where we kind of lift each other up. Um, Before we get into things, there's a caller on the line who's been holding for a little bit. So let's take a quick call because I'm sure they want to say hi to you. And uh, and then we'll kind of move along with the show here. Let's see if we can get this person online. Hey, um, caller, can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Hey, what's your name? Thanks for calling in. Uh, My name is Chris. Hey, Chris. Thanks for calling the Pond Hunter Radio Broadcast. Uh, How can we help?
3: Well, I actually had a winterizing uh, uh, question for you. Uh, I just put in uh, a pond in my backyard, uh, about 4,000 gallons, have a 35-foot stream, and I decided to shut everything down uh, because I was worried about uh, an ice dam, uh if if I kept it, you know, rolling all, all winter. Just wanna see what you guys think if I if I did the right thing by shutting it all down or if you would have kept it going.
2: Where are you located?
3: Uh Geneva, Illinois. Illinois. No,
2: I'm just saying. Yeah. I was out in Geneva this summer. <laughs> I, I love Geneva. That's oh, a great, great. <laughs> town. But it's not a tropical town.
3: <laughs> no. Definitely not. Um, Definitely not now either. My pond is completely iced over except for, you know, I have a bubbler going in it, keeping a hole in it.
2: Yeah. I guess there's, there's a few things um, that I would take into consideration. I'm sure Kelly can add to it as well, but I think it really depends on, um, do you have fish in the pond? Is it a fish pond?
3: Yes. Yeah, I have okay.
2: And are you running anything like an aerator or a de-icer?
3: Yes, I have a, a, an aerator going on. I have a couple crates stacked up so it's more towards the surface.
2: I generally would say uh, you know, it, and how are you set up? Do you have an external filtration system? What what type of pond do you have? Do you have a skimmer? And well, every Bio I got everything
3: Falls? from uh from aquascapes. I have uh the biofalls uh uh and then I have, you know, the skimmer box um but I shut all that down. Okay. Because, again, I was afraid, yeah. afraid of keeping it running with the stream going that it would start, you know, freezing up and the water would start dumping out over the stream.
2: Yeah, and that is certainly a consideration. Generally speaking, those systems, Aquascape systems, are designed and engineered to run year-round. Um, most of the systems that I install, and we're in the same zone as you. I'm zone 5. You're zone 5. Um, right. They run year-round. But you, I would say... It, it really is a question of weather and whether you're getting extreme um extreme conditions. So it's a typical winter I would say you you really wouldn't have too mu too many challenges running it all year round. But when you do well, have what very if, what if it was
3: like last year.
2: <laughs> exactly. So so we had a lot of extreme weather last year. So when you get right. to those type of conditions then you do run that chance of having ice jams which can create leaks, which can create issues and burn out pumps. So, um, given those circumstances, it is better to shut it down. And if you're I don't know what the exact temperatures are out there right now, but if you're getting to that um and you do decide to shut it down, if it thaws later, if we get a warming trend, you may you could probably start it up again. Um but if you do decide to shut it down for the winter you need to remove your pump. Um yeah, make I did sure that. you're okay, your your filter and everything is drained, and uh, your deicer and your aerator are running strong. Kelly, what do you think?
4: Oh, you're a little bit colder than I am, except I think last year our winter was so exceptional, we probably had a Zone 3 winter,
0: <laughs> and you all
4: probably had a Zone 1, I'm not sure, but um, <laughs> I always leave mine run. Um, I weigh the consequences of I get to see ice formations versus ice dams. And I think if you're paying careful attention and you're monitoring the situation, then you can leave it run. Um, if you're going to have a period of really exceptional cold, if your system will drain down and you can pull your pump easily, then, you know, I hold out to the last minute. Right. Um Last winter was so cold, actually my entire waterfall iced over about a foot above where the water was circulating, and it ran all winter.
0: Um,
4: Winter of 96, I did have to go out at 2 a.m. because I had accumulated too much ice, Um, and I just pulled my pump that night and, you know, Opened the valve so that it would the check valve so that the water would drain back down and then I couldn't plug it back in. Mine's on the north side of my house too, so I don't get any assistance from radiant warmth from the sun in the winter.
0: So it
4: once it's frozen, it's frozen, and I have to wait for it to thaw out. But I I was fearful that last winter I would have ice jamming, but it was so cold it just froze right over the top. Hmm. Um, Yeah. And it ran the entire winter. I was surprised myself. I had the the same conditions. I didn't
2: turn my um, pond off at all last year. And I've had it before in other winters as well. You get kind of an envelope of ice, like Kelly's talking about, over the waterfall. Um, The only thing that I would take more into consideration with your particular pond is that you have a 35-foot stream. So Mm -hmm. I'm guessing a lot of flat areas where you may have slow-moving water and you're going to be more likely to, to get ice. But like Kelly's saying, if you keep an eye on it, um, you probably could run it all year long. And I don't know if I'd let this cold snap necessarily turn you off, um, turn, have you turn your pond off. Because um,
3: right.
2: if, if you run it year-round, you can really enjoy it tremendously. And
3: yeah, we I really to- wanted to, yeah. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean you 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 got a great system. You have great equipment. And again, it's it's designed and engineered to run year round even in conditions like zone 5 and even a little bit lower than that. Um so yeah. I don't know if I'd be too quick to turn it off just yet, but certainly keep an eye on it when we get extreme weather conditions.
3: Yeah, I talked to to Greg, uh, I know Greg from Aquascapes. and uh uh yeah. he, you know, he he told me to shut it down. And I just wanted to get your you know, opinion um, to see see if I could, you know, start it up. And I mean, it's all, it's, I did everything already. And one other question I had is with the skimmer box, uh, seeing that my pump is out of there and it's just sitting with water that's eventually going to freeze. I'm afraid that it's going to crack, you know, with the expanding ice. So what I did is I took a couple two liter empty, two liter bottles and, tied a uh, string to it and sunk it down. So it's halfway, uh, uh, the water levels, right. Halfway between the the bottles so it can crush the bottles. That's what you do for pools too. Is so it doesn't, uh, in your skimmer boxes yeah. and in pools. So, it doesn't, so I don't know if I should have done that. Maybe I'm just being overcautious, but I'm a little, I don't want it to crack the skimmer box. <laughs> well,
2: you know, sometimes being overcautious is not such a bad thing, you know? Um, yeah. but, uh, you know, I, it, in my opinion, I think as long as you're keeping a, a good eye on it, we could very possibly come back into a warming trend. Not meaning yeah. warm weather, but, but not below freezing weather like we have sure. been having. So yeah, um, yeah.
3: we're at a, we're at about 10 degrees here, and uh, you know it's like I said, it's completely iced over except for where I have the aerator. Um, yeah. And do, do I need both an aerator and a deicer?
2: I say yes. I think you should. I like the redundancy of those. So okay. if you know one happens to go, you still have the other one running, or you have um, both going. You have a, I would, you know, move, keep them maybe apart from each other. Have the aerator in one area, uh, the deicer okay. in another area. Right in front of your skimmer box would be a good place for that.
0: Okay. Um, yeah.
2: But I would use both. If you have both, why not? I do too. Yeah. You know, if something did happen. You go, oh man. I have have it sitting in the garage. I should have just plugged it in. So I would use
3: both. Okay. Do you have time for one more question?
0: Sure.
3: Okay. String algae had a had a big problem with string algae. I ended you know I have uh, a UV clarifier which kept the water clear, but obviously didn't do anything for the the string algae. And then uh, I used some of that uh, Aquafix or Algae Fix. I think is what it's called. Um, and that worked great. I used that in the, in the summertime that worked great. As it got colder, the spring algae got worse and the algae fix didn't really work in the colder temperatures that we had in October, uh, beginning of September. Is that normal?
2: Um, yes. we happen to have a aquatic plant expert with us tonight.
0: <laughs> okay. Kelly, <And
4: algae's> a- <laughs> what do you think? Algae is a plant. Um, do you have a lot of plants in the pond?
3: Um, I have uh, a couple lily uh, lilies at the bottom, and the rest are uh, just some bog plants on the on the shells.
4: Okay.
3: So, I, I, not not a lot.
4: Okay. Um, one of the things is algae is a plant, and if you were to consider plants in a hierarchy. Single-celled algae or the algae that causes green water would be at the the bottom of the hierarchy. And string algae, you know, would be next. It's a little stronger. It can out-compete single-cell pea soup algae, we call it. Um, okay. And then marginal plants, water lilies, you know, submerged grasses, all of the other plants are of the highest order, I guess you could say. So algae to some degree has to be you have nutrients that come into your pond as a somewhat closed system pollen dust leaves decaying matter whatever blows in from the wind whatever you know there's oh fish food fish fish waste is all nutrients that are be that are are in incoming um when nutrient levels exceed what the plants are capable of consuming or when the plants are resting. Because right now your plants are in decline, algae is opportunistic. So it's going to move in when the plants are on the decline. So you typically see more string algae in the fall and winter than you do during the growing season. Mm, Um, I feel like you know algae is still a plant it performs a function if you have it in abundance it's because you have the nutrients to support it so I have areas in my pond um, that are heavily planted and a lot of algae grows in there amongst those plants as well Okay. I let it go, and every couple of weeks I go in and wind some up and remove it and throw it in the compost. If you consider it a nutrients-in, nutrients-out system, anything that you take out, algae, plants, you know, fish that have gotten too big, um, um, you know, you know. They're, that's nutrients-out. Um right you have a 35 foot stream I think you said
0: yes yes
4: the best filter opportunity you have Um, plants consume nutrients at a higher rate if you flush water across their roots Um, bog systems streams wherever you're flushing water across the plant roots you're inspiring them to grow at a faster rate thereby uptaking more nutrients and growing faster
3: well, it makes um, sense because my stream gets gets loaded. And I keep have to go in there and you know pull it has out. Has the and, most
4: algae in it. Yes. Yeah, because your koi are eating it in the pond. Right. And I also have a, a a a I guess you could say a a principle that you can follow is is that if. When I have an abundance of algae, string algae in my pond that accumulates over the winter months, I withhold feeding my fish until they consume that algae. Hmm,
0: okay. If it's
4: really bad, I will help them by removing some. But I don't start feeding them until they've eaten most of the algae. And they'll line up, you know, they're grazers. They'll eat all right. day picking at algae on the side walls or, or on the rocks or yeah. um and I I I tell my customers this all the time. Fish food is cookies. Algae is spinach. If hmm. you give them a choice of cookies and spinach, in most cases they're going to eat the cookies and, and ignore the spinach.
0: Right, right.
4: So it's a matter of balance, and if you're allowing them to be part of the solution. Okay. By withholding fish food until they get things under control a bit, then you know, you're know you going to have an easier task. And then plant your stream heavily um, with plants that don't have aggressive root systems. What you don't want is plants that are going to partially destroy a section of your stream if you have to pull them out of there because they've gotten too big. So you want things that have a mild-mannered root system so that when they grow, they're easily removed. You can Pull some string algae out. You can pull some other plant out. To me, it's easier than to have something growing too much and get rid of it than it is to have an unhealthy system that you're chemically treating that's not really fixing the problem.
0: Right, I it's hate doing
4: Band-Aid. that. It's a band aid. It's not a solution. Yeah. It's a band aid.
2: Chemicals don't. That really don't help. It, it does. It, it hides the problem. How old is your pond, Chris?
3: I, I this is going to be the first winter. I just uh, put it in in June.
2: Okay. And that may have something to do with that as well. You know, 'cause it it, it probably does. Yeah, okay. I mean it's it's not it's established but it's not really, really mature. And as your sure. pond matures, it's gonna be able to process nutrient levels better, which is gonna bring algae uh more into control. So, you know, that that is something that you need to kind of factor into the this equation as well. But um you know, plus with everything that Kelly said. Um, so that's kind of the the deal on that. Algae is not bad for your, for your fish. Uh, it's okay. just is something that we don't necessarily want to see.
3: Right. Yeah. Right. Like and my, my, my stream is not very, I mean, it's not very deep. It's only, I would say like four inches deep when the water's moving. Um, what would you recommend like plants that I could put into the stream?
4: I am looking for that right now, actually. Illinois I mean, I could... just added some new plants to things you can't have. Um,
0: Here's... It was just the
4: city of Chicago, but they have expanded that to cover the entire state. So before I tell you what you should use, you should probably be able to buy it. Um Myosotis no, no, I... is one that I use frequently because it's so easy to discard and yes, you can have it.
0: Okay, what is it called?
4: It's Myosotis water forget-me-not. Okay. It's um I wouldn't call it aggressive, but I wouldn't call it mild mannered. However, it doesn't make much of a root system. I filter most my pond with only a few plants, few species, and myosotis the beauty of it is is that it'll grow up out of the rocks it'll soften the edges it will grow into the water and wherever there is too much of it simply pick it up and pull it out it traps in my pond about three inches of sediment in the root system by the time it's to a place where there's too much of it but it won't dislodge anything you know it won't pull rocks with it it's like if you put an iris in there and you pull it out, it might take that a three-foot section of beautiful rock yeah. work with it.
3: Right. And that's yeah, what the I'll algae does. I pull the algae and it takes tons of gravel out because it, you know, sticks to it on you know, popping rocks off of algae. And, before and it it, yeah, it because it
4: embeds itself in the rocks and yeah, so it wants yeah. to come with it. So what you want to do is try to encourage a different plant that will out-compete it that is easier to manage and more aesthetically pleasing. And your climate, my Myosotis blooms um, from April through July, the end of July, early August. Um, You're a little bit cooler, so it may bloom the entire summer for you.
0: And it gets Um, really
4: cheerful little blue flowers. It's a great-looking plant. Yeah, it's mild in comparison to most other things.
0: Can you spell that for me, how it's spelled?
4: It's M, like Mary. Yeah. Y-O-S. Okay. O-T-I-S. I I think that's right. Yeah, myosotis. And then it's Scorpioides, um, which is the water forget-me-not. There are other myosotis that are also forget-me-not, but not as tolerant of the water. They'll, They'll stick to higher ground. Um, and I'll spell that as S-C-O-R-P-I-O-I-D is in David, E-S, like Sam. But it's okay. water, forget me not.
0: Okay, very good. That's awesome. It's very yeah, easy I, I, to
4: tuck into places, traps a tremendous amount of sediment in its root systems, and it doesn't embed itself in the rock work at all.
3: And I, I got a bunch of uh, impatience and... Uh, I know they love water, so I I sprayed off all the dirt and just bare-rooted them in between rocks in the stream, and they did fantastic.
4: Yeah, Uh, they do. I learned that at uh, the Grand Old Opry Hotel. If you have never been there, they have a giant, I don't know, six-story waterfall, four stories high, something, and the entire face of it is covered with impatience.
3: Wow. That sounds so cool. (laughs) Thank you very much, guys. I appreciate you spending the time with me.
4: Hey, Chris, thank you for
2: calling in. Have a great night. All
3: right, you Our too, pleasure.
2: Fella. Yeah, I like Forget Me Now. That, that's a really – that was like one of the first plants I kind of fell in love with as before I even got into ponds as a kid. I lived down in Georgia, and I used to go play. We had a, a, a creek or a crick, as they called it down there. A crick, um,
0: yep.
2: And uh, it was just – Forget me not everywhere. I mean, it was it was awesome. I I remember that plant from just being a little kid.
4: It's a wonderful sea of blue, and it's um because it doesn't have a tenacious root system. It's very easy to manage, and and in the spring, you know, in the winter it turns entirely black, and a lot of people think that it's dead, and they'll go and and remove it all. Um, come springtime, because it almost disintegrates next to, to down to nothing. Um, and then in the spring, just this emerald carpet will just emerge um, out of nowhere and then covered with a sea of blue flowers. Um, mine persists for months. Is, yes, is do you carry that?
0: Yes,
2: we do. It is in prohibited
4: that? in Connecticut and Massachusetts. So tell me about
2: Maryland Aquatics. What What is your role there?
4: My role there, um, well, let's see. Dick always says we're not an organization, we're an organism. (laughs) We all migrate to what needs to be done. Um, But primarily I'm in charge of sales and marketing. Uh, You know, I help people choose and select what they need, how much they need, um, different applications, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate. Yeah. And this time of year I'd imagine, you know, things probably slow down
2: a little bit because – just because of the weather conditions, um, what do you, what happens at Maryland Aquatics during the, the winter months?
4: Well, we're working on things like the invasive species list, actually. I got frustrated with the chain of command. Um, there's a process in which invasive species are supposed to be made public so that growers like ourselves and consumers can know what they can and can't have in their state. Um, that list has a protocol of reporting where that information is supposed to go. It's supposed to go to the National Plant Board, and oftentimes that is extremely out of date. So Uh. we were under fire for shipping some plants to Oregon or Washington, um... I believe it was a taxodium in which we were not actually breaking any rule we were allowed to ship that plant but once you get blacklisted by a state they pull all of your shipments Um, we had to get our inspector to fight a battle it can get pretty pretty hairy um so i decided that if you know, ignorance is n- no, You that's not, you, you still have to know the rule whether it's posted or not. You're still guilty yeah. whether you can find it or not. So I started keeping a list Well, I, I went state to state. It took me months to compile a list, and now I rely on industry input. Um, if you're a grower in New York, you know what the rules are that have changed in your state. And I get that information fed to me that way now um, and some states send it to me directly. Um, but invasive species and prohibited plants, regulated plants, uh, changing at a much faster pace than it ever was. So that's what I've been working on for the last week or so. And Illinois well, actually has added quite a bit to their list.
2: Why do you think that is? Why why the change in that? Why has that um, kind of grown?
4: Back in you know the late '80s, when a lot of the the containerized aquatic nurseries sort of evolved, um, I guess prior to that there it wasn't treated as a container plant. You know, you bought bare root water lilies through the mail. That was the only way you could get them. And as efficiency and growing uh, methods have changed, plants become more widely available. Their discovery of you know certain climate zones when plants are moving more swiftly across the united states their the problems develop more quickly um so that okay. means, leads to increased regulation,
0: yeah,
2: and plants can really uh a lot of them the invasive species can really cause major Problems, some some things that hobbyists might not even think about. Uh, you know, they might say, okay, well, you know, I don't want my local pond to get choked out by whatever the parrot feather, water lettuce, w- whatever the case. But um, sometimes these can actually slow down um, trade and the economy. And I mean, people, c- counties and cities and states have to put millions and millions and millions of dollars into the removal of these invasive species. So I, I guess that is going to play into it as well, just trying to control that and keep down the costs of of having to deal with that.
4: Absolutely. Say- and yeah. as seems to be the case with all invasive species, Florida has it the worst.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know,
4: from snakes and boars and frogs and aquatic plants. They spend um, oh tens of millions of dollars. invasive species eradication in Florida every year and other states aquatic plants you know we have invasive species of all kinds vines trees shrubs you know grasses perennials annual weed grasses and things Um, aquatic plants are harder to manage so the cost to the state or the county um, is much higher yeah. When when something gets released into the wild, and I guess it's a good time to say that releasing your plants into natural water bodies is never a good idea, no matter where you live. No, um, it is not. That encourages regulation as well because it creates problems.
2: Now, at Maryland Aquatic, are you guys growers of the stock, or do you import, do you buy stock from other growers? Or um, We a-
4: grow... Most of what we sell, however, um, because this industry is as friendly and um, as it is, we do share a lot. Um, we have a number of other growers that we work with on jobs. You know, right now I have a couple of big jobs on the West Coast, so actually I'm having um, Oregon Aquatics and Southwest Aquatics supply some of the material because it just makes better sense. Um, oh, cool. You know, and so we work with uh, another couple of local growers. We can't all have everything all the time. So we do a lot of yeah. trading, a lot of helping each other out, and then it works out really well. Yeah, that's
2: cool. That's great.
4: What's the um, the
2: website for Maryland Aquatics? com. That's easy to remember. Um now you're also a writer you you're a contributing writer to industry magazines um I've read um articles by you and you've also um co-authored two water gardening books and um mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of, of the lotus plant in general I I just love it I, I love that it's kind of mystical and spiritual and it has a lot of cultural significance and even see that in in artwork there's a lot of um art that's been generated by the lotus paintings drawings even tattoos. Um, so when I came across your book, The Lotus, Note, It and Grow It, I got it from Amazon, and both of Kelly's books can be found on Amazon.com. Um, and I read that. It's a really nice book. It has lots of great pictures, illustrations. It's laid out very nicely, and um, it's really an, an enjoyable read. Um, tell us a little bit about how you ended up getting involved with that, the writing of that.
4: Oh, let's see. I have been, I guess, pretty prolific writer since the beginning, and I worked um, way back when with Pond Keeper Magazine, and Paula Biles, who is my co-author on the Lotus book, was also um, my editor when used to write for Pond Keeper Magazine. And she and I work extremely well together. She's a librarian, and she keeps A tight ship and I'm sort of the loose free-spirited creative partner Um, so we write really well together the International Water Gardening Society was looking for something to offer its members and they asked us to voluntarily write a book about Lotus and that was given to every member of the society at that time Uh, it was a huge undertaking And we couldn't fit, I guess we discarded about half of what we wrote because we had limitations as to how many pages we could put, how many, um, because it had to do with postage requirements and budgetary things that had to be met. So after um, they did that and we asked if we could purchase the reprint rights, which we did. And um, we reprinted it ourselves because we thought it was too much energy was expended to let it just fall by the wayside. So we bought that, reprinted it, and um, it's not a big book, but it's very informative. It's got no white space. (laughs) (laughs) We packed it as full as we could squeeze things in there. It's in there.
0: Um, And it was
4: very enjoyable. I'm very attached to that plant. I make art with it myself. Um Paula Biles went to Thailand five or six years ago, and she brought me back a lotus box that was wrapped in a leaf and painted in beautiful red and gold and um, metallic paint. And I called some friends in Thailand, insistent on, how do you do that? This is beautiful. And they all told me it was a Thai trade secret. So I have spent the last few years figuring out how I can paint lotus leaves and wrap boxes and canvases and stone and other things with lotus leaves. Um, And you can find that on my, I have a personal, I have several, I have five Facebook pages, but that one would be Facebook Nalumbo 2218, I think. Okay. But if you just find if you facebook my page then you can link it from there.
0: Okay.
2: Yeah, it's it's a it's a great book. It has chapters on its botanical background, its cultivation and landscape uses, um a chapter on 101 other uses for the plant which is pretty amazing. I mean just the versatility of that plant and how it is used um and even within cultural traditions. And I guess I was looking at the timeline, it goes back thirty four million years. <laughs> so it's been with us for quite some time now. It's been with us long. we. Uh, yeah, been.
4: and I believe Paula just there's new information that dates it back, I think, hundred and hundred and thirty three million years if I'm correct. Wow. Um back. As they timeline things.
2: Yeah. That's amazing. And I'm sure it'll be with us. It, it is a, it.
4: it's one of the most researched plants in the world. It has remarkable history. Um I grew it with in my backyard with before I even had a pond. Um we grew it in the thirty six inch container that I buried in my perennial garden and within two weeks there were fourteen different uh I guess you could say bits of wildlife had been attracted to this little three foot hole in the ground. Well, wow.
0: um,
4: Water boatmen, water skates, beetles, butterflies, toads, frogs, the cat who chased the frogs. But, um, point being is that, th- that th- it attracts an abundance of wildlife like no other plant that I know. And, yeah. um, it has it's remarkable ab- history. It, it, there's just, Medicine, food, NASA, spacesuits, windshields, uh, surgical scrubs—all um, have some components of lotus research yeah. as a part of them now.
2: And there's a lot of kind of funny pictures in the book of people wearing lotus leaves as hats, and <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. When my
4: daughter was young, we didn't dare have a paper party hat. We always had lotus leaf hats. There was a a room full of little girl fairies, so I also got to learn it from the perspective of my children's eyes, and um, I think that's a lot of its charm as well.
0: I
2: was called out, I guess it was two years ago, I went to, uh, in, in central Jersey, there was a corporate center that had basically a dried out, a drying out pond, so it was very marshy, but it had gotten overgrown with lotus. Somebody had introduced lotus, and um, I've seen lotus many, many times. But going down there, I'd never seen before that the lotus leaves were coming up six feet, seven feet above the ground. I mean, Mm -hmm. they were tremendous. And then I saw a picture in your book of a guy standing on the side of a road, which appears to be with a lotus leaf that's probably like nine feet tall. That's yep. amazing. Is that is that an actual lotus leaf, that, that tall, or was that it extended? It is an
4: actual lotus leaf with an unadulterated stem. Um, I've actually seen it with 15-foot stems when it's trying to reach across a body of water, if that's a large pond or a river. It will actually make itself a suspension bridge where the leaves hold the rootstock underneath parallel um, to the surface of the water, and it will reach out, you know, 30, 40, 60, 80 feet into a body of water in search of the other side. And when that happens, the leaf stems get even longer.
2: Wow. That is the will to survive.
4: <laughs> yes. No doubt. The will to and the other of, side.
2: <laughs> there's a lot of lore, because it's been around so long, that goes along with lotus. Uh, and it varies from culture to culture. What What's some of the most What's the most interesting bit of lotus lore that you've heard?
4: Oh gosh, I mean there's so much history associated with it. Um oh, That's There, hmm, that's a tough one. It's I guess the biggest thing is about, you know, Auburn University had a project, I think it ran for 10 years, called the Lotus Project. And a gentleman from there was getting his um, Ph.D., and he was from China. And he did a a huge amount of lotus research. And one of the things that he left Auburn with is the task, um, he's back in China, the task to DNA map lotus worldwide Um, and trying to map its progression um, continentally um, around the world and how much variation and change. um, How in Egypt the seeds are 2,500 years old and still germinate today. You know, what is the oldest seed to germinate? Is it 2,500, 3,500, 5,000 years old? Um until the outside of the seed coating is scarified, it doesn't nothing happens to it. It remains perpetually the same um, it, it is a plant amazing. that is so thick with history and stories and um spirituality medicine it's it's just really hard to answer that.
2: <laughs> well, have you eaten
4: lotus all the time? oh yeah, um well. We go on a river in Maryland. Um, when Dika came here, I took him for DNA sampling on the Sassafras River on Maryland's eastern shore. It's only known in three places in the state of Maryland anymore. Um, one of it was reestablished by, um, you know, in more more recent years. The other two are naturally occurring. Um, a lot of natural stands of lotus have been killed due to pollution. And um, we go down there to give you an analogy of how tasty lotus is. Um, My son, who was raised in the nursery, is a lotus seed fanatic. And uh, the first time we went to the river to see lotus growing in its natural environment, he was about mm, seven, eight years old, and we couldn't find him for two and a half hours. And so he finally resurfaced um, perfectly at home on the water in his kayak. And I asked him where he'd been, and he said he was busy. I said, busy? Hmm. What were you busy doing? He was busy eating lotus seeds for two and a half hours. Oh, my Um, (laughs) gosh. They're really good. They really, really are. The young seeds have a taste that cross between sweet corn and a sweet pea and as they mature they have the flavor of a chestnut.
0: Oh
2: wow. So
4: everywhere in between.
2: Yeah. And as many as roots.
4: It. Yep, the roots uh sent some into my daughter's preschool and she made some with cinnamon, some with allspice, powdered sugar, granulated sugar, um and some plain, and the kids wouldn't eat any of them except the plain ones. They said the other ones tasted bad. So it naturally has a good flavor.
0: Yeah.
4: Although different varieties do taste different. Yeah. It's very cool, and it's a great book, The Lotus,
2: Know It and Grow It. Now, I didn't get a chance to read the Water Gardener's Bible yet. Um, Tell me a little bit about it.
4: Um. That's a cooperative effort I did with Ben Helm, who is an amazing man, um, a wealth of knowledge. He um, has done a lot of research. He's very well versed. He is in England. Um, He's not here. So he wrote that book and I contracted with him. He wanted me to write the plant sections. So I did that. He wrote the rest. Um so it was a cooperative effort again and it has a lot of information that I haven't found in other books. Um Ben is very articulate, very knowledgeable and he put together probably one of one of the best rounded books if you're, you know, an established water gardener to give you some additional information that you can and, and beginner too probably. Um, so yeah. it's a great book. I just wrote the plant sections and uh, it was published in the um the UK and here under two different names. Also the Lotus <laughs> book was published, um, translated and published in Korean as well.
2: Oh, wow, that's cool. Are these um books available as ebooks? Or are they they just the physical um hard and soft cover books?
4: Just as hard and soft cover books. Now, the Lotus book, we are out of them. We have only a little bit left, and Paula and I have a dream to redo it as an e-book so that we can put back in all of the information that we weren't able to put in, you know, the smaller format because of budget requirements. So we have a lot of it written. We have to put it together, and both of our lives have become, I guess, too complicated for that at the moment um but we will get there. We have a website also about the com, and there is a Facebook page which is about the lotus. Um the Facebook page we because it's so easy, we update it twice a week and it's new information. I think yesterday Paula put something on about some people breaking ice to harvest lotus tubers. Um and so there's posts at least twice a week in there about lotus and on Fridays she puts out what we call spread the joy of lotus and we marry a quote um with a photograph and we try to always maintain an international flair and um sharing of people worldwide with lotus other parts of the world have a lot more knowledge and and Inspiration than we have here But if you want to know more about Lotus it's huge Amount of information in there
2: Yeah I follow that page Um, That is That's a fun page Um, So Yeah I got it and and I need you to sign My book next time I see you (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay Let's get get into Water gardens uh, a bit And um, what I'd like to do is Kind of walk through uh the planning of a water garden here for so for for a person who's planning a water garden, and just to kind of knock it because it's such a broad subject let's let's kind of look at it as if we we're planning a ten by fifteen in ground water garden and um you know if of course the first thing is going to be to actually construct it, so what would you say are some good parameters you know i'm I'm not talking about Keeping koi and keeping fish—we're not too worried about that at this point. But just like a real straight-up water garden, um, what are some of the parameters as far as constructing a water garden that you would recommend?
4: What are probably some probably the def- biggest? Yeah, the biggest thing that you know—if you're building to to suit plant material—and I. I'm a firm believer that plants are personal. I mean, ponds are personality driven. You know, whether they're formal or wildlife or, you know, just average. Everybody has something that they want to get back from. There's people who build their ponds to grow food now. That's become you talked about that earlier. That has become a really big trend again, um is using your pond to grow food that you yeah, can harvest and product. use. Yep. Yeah. And But for a basic backyard pond, probably the biggest mistake that we see is that there's still a lot of information out there that tells you to, you know, make, say, an 8 by 10 make a one-foot-wide shelf all the way around. Right. And I have an objection to that method. Um, most ponds you're going to view from a single perspective a majority of the time. That doesn't mean that you won't walk around them occasionally, but most of them are viewed, you know, out a window, from a porch, you know, a a single point of view. And plants that get tall in the water become very buoyant. So a one-foot-wide shelf isn't adequate to hold them in an upright position. When you get past, you know, 18 inches tall on a breezy day, things tend to want to fall in. So I like to see people build a two- or a three-foot-wide shelf on the back side of wherever you're viewing the pond and no shelf on the front side. That also allows your fish to come up close to you and you can interact with them and you're not looking in the water at a shelf or looking at your fish over some plants that are on that foreground shelf. So just eliminate the foreground shelf and go for a wider shelf in the back so that plants can be in adequate size containers. They can have ample amounts of fertilizer, plenty of room to grow, little fishes, baby um, insects, worms, all dragonfly larvae, water boatmen, a lot of the other things that come along um, have a place to hide in those plant roots. And, and, you know, when you have a, a skinny shelf all the way around, you have plants in small pots and everything alive is accessible um and becomes yeah. prey or victim to someone larger than itself tadpoles fish fry um yeah. so all of those things have a more natural area and you get a lot of the benefit of you know having dragonflies and and you know baby fish occasionally you don't want too many okay. baby fish, but so fish. when when you're digging it out you got to make sure you have
2: real wide shelves and proper placement yeah. of the shelf for viewing and, and for optimal plant growth. Um, when you're lining the pond, um, I've seen water gardens built out of everything, concrete, liner, um, plastic shelves, vinyl, um, even just mud bottom. What is there a particular type of liner that, that you would recommend over another to build a water garden?
4: Mm. That one really falls into the personality thing. Um and you know, if you're bi- if 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 your personality dictates that you want a formal water feature then it's probably going to be concrete in most cases. Some of that depends on your budget, too. Um, sure. you know, we have clients that spend, you know, 100 and, uh we recently had one wasn't ours, but a contractor we work with, $125,000 fish pond. So what they did is entirely different than someone whose budget might be, say, you know, $12,000. Right. Um, so sometimes so it's job, dictated by that.
2: Okay. So there's not really necessarily any particular liner that, that will benefit a water garden more than another. It really
0: mm-hmm. it's
2: the other type of factors, um, budget, personality like you said if you're doing formal you want concrete if you're a a natural you know nature loving person maybe you want a mud bottom pond you know
4: yeah absolutely or you may use liner but you may naturalize it so that it does it is attractive to wildlife um right you know having raised turtles for a very long time aquatic turtles i had a friend while we were on vacation bring a box turtle but my pond wasn't built for a box turtle so the poor box turtle died Box turtles need to walk in and walk out. I don't have any accessibility areas like that. It drops straight off at the edge to three and a half feet, which isn't a problem for aquatic turtles. But if you're trying to yeah. build it for all types of wildlife, you would change the way you build it, and you would change—you know—you would have soil or sand on top of your liner so that they have something that they can grip you know, to get okay. in and out. So it has to suit what your purpose is. You, you, your lining would be have to be appropriate to what you're trying to get to.
2: Okay. And that may come into play when you're considering the location as well. Um, now, I would think that how much, what the photo period or how much light um, you're getting into your pond would be a big consideration when you're planning a a water garden. What are some of the Absolutely. things that people consider as far as how much light they want to get into there?
4: That's one of the things, too. Say you're building uh, a water feature in a shaded area as opposed to a full sun area. <laughs> if it's full sun, the say a hardy water lily likes it to be a little deeper because it's a little cooler and it can shade itself and it doesn't get as heat-stressed um, if it's in, say, two feet deep of water. But if you're building that same pond in a shady area, you would want to create a shallower area for your water lilies because they need to believe that the day is longer than it is. So by putting them closer to the surface than you would in a full sun pond where you're trying to help them cool themselves, you're actually trying to get them up close. You would put them in, say, only 12 to 15 inches of water so that they can... um, they think the day is longer. You're just cheating them. Okay. You know, if and the sunlight has to penetrate deeper, then, you know, you want maximum exposure and you want them closer to the surface, and they think the day's a little longer than it actually is.
2: And, then, so the, and the photo period will also affect flower production versus vegetated growth. Is that correct? If you have yeah. more light, you're going to get flowers where, with the less light, less sunlight that you have on it, um, your lilies or other flower producing plants are not gonna be um produce as many blooms.
4: Right. They won't produce as many, but if you cheat them a little bit, they fa the light intensity is greater, so you will get more blooms. If you have a shady pond and you put your water lilies in three feet deep, you can pretty much expect never to see a flower. Right so by putting okay. them shallower you you can modify things a bit to to give them a more favorable circumstance now, even with the water and, lily though you need at least 4 hours of midday sun so
0: okay
2: and to backtrack just just a moment the you mentioned that the water lily basically is trying to keep itself cool um what are some how does the, the temperature affect the behavior of a, of a water lily if it's too warm like, can you look at a pond and say, oh, this water lily is, is heat-stressed or, or it's too cool? What are some of the things that, that is that indicates that there's a temperature problem with your pond?
4: That's a really good question. You know, tropical water lilies perform better in a southern climate because they like warmer water. And you can look at hardy lilies as you get further south, and they are heat-stressed. It is too warm for them, Um, just like it's not warm enough for a tropical water lily up north. So it has to do as much. It's a bit climate-driven, but, again, it's right plant, right place, which is always the case. You know, tropical lilies like it where it's warmer. So if you're trying to grow them further north, you want to create a shallow water area That's specific to that. Um, The owner of Maryland Aquatic, in his fish pond, he has an 18 foot by 10 foot area that is just 12 inches deep. It's for all tropical water lilies. They need to be up there in the warmer water, in the northern climate to really succeed. Um, And the hardy lilies, in a southern climate, have to be deeper the further south that you go because it gets too hot for them. So, yes, you can see heat stress in water lilies and cold okay. stress. It depends. Hardy's in the south, and, and and the same thing goes for full sun versus part shade. If they're a little bit cooler, then they're going to perform right. differently.
2: Now, when you talk about um, deep water and shallow water, those can be uh, – you know, terms that that can kind of be defined in a lot of different ways. So when we're talking about deep water, what would that depth be? And when we talk about shallow water, what what are those depths?
4: For most plant shelves for shallow water, we make them um, 10 to 12 inches deep. And you may not use that depth. But if you get, say you have a three-foot wide shelf and you want to plant something that's going to be an absolute focal point, an architectural, you know, feature for that pond that's going to be big and bold, it's going to need a big and, and bold container. You can't make your shelves deeper once your pond is finished, but you can make them shallower. So to be able to accommodate something that's going to be a specimen or a focal point that's going to get really big and require a large pot, it's going to have to have adequate space to be able to do that. If the surrounding plants need to be a little shallower, you can always put some brick or, you know, we use uh, cut milk crates, bulb crates, um, you know, stone to make things to, to act as a bit of a shelf on a shelf to get them a little shallower, and some of it is just the requirement of the plant. But as a general rule, we don't go less than 10 inches in a shallow water area. You can make it shallower, okay. but you can't make it deeper. And right. deep water, lilies, even hardy lilies, I think is probably the biggest flaw in my own pond. It's three and a half feet deep. It takes them forever to wake up in the spring. The water is cold down there. You know, so ideally yeah. it should have been two feet and around arm's length. It's hard to manage plants if they're in too deep of water. So koi ponds are often deeper but not really practical for plants, you know. So deep water is sometimes relative to what it's accommodating. Uh, Eighteen yeah. inches to two feet is fine for water lilies in the deep part. Um, but you may want to have an another deep part that's three, three and a half feet for your fish. So that planning is really important in the beginning. You know, knowing having some idea of what you what you want. If it's a fish pond, if it's a water garden, if it's an architectural feature, the water depth's gonna vary on all of them.
2: Right. So when you're planning you kinda have to have a a, a fair idea of what you want the finished mature product uh, projects to to right, look like. and it's
4: going to have to coincide with your climate. So, what with that in would mind be that the appropriate depths in the north may not be the appropriate depths for the same plants in the south.
0: Right. Yeah. So
2: everything is relative, and and everything kind of changes exactly for those reasons that you're saying. And That um, makes for
4: a complicated mess.
2: <laughs> yeah. Sometimes. We'll all get. With uh, (laughs) though, and there should be spacing considerations for certain plants too. So I mean, we've already talked about making the shelf wide enough, but when you're installing your plants, um, you know you don't want to crowd them too much together because when we buy plants at a vendor, uh, me uh, we being hobbyists, um, they're usually relatively young plants
4: and small
2: for what they potentially will be. Is is that correct?
4: Uh yes, because part of that is is like I talked about before the wind and having adequate planting containers and you know space for these plants you know when they reach maturity so that the wind's not blowing them over so that they have adequate soil mass so they have you know enough fertilizer for the growing season all of that is is hinged on that and one of the things that we always guide our customers is you know to start with less let them grow a little bit get a a feel for how much space they're going to need i mean we can guide them some um but over planting seems to be um heavy but aquatic plants grow very quickly too so it, it in the early spring you know, we advise against people having, you know, putting so much in there so that by the end of the season it's overgrown because you don't want that either. Yeah. And some and of over... it has to do with with their, you know, at the pace at which they grow.
2: Right. And people can get very enthusiastic once they get into water gardening and, and all of a sudden they want to keep everything. And um, I see that issue a lot in landscaping where things get overcrowded. Uh, it it's too bad. I mean, I see in a lot of landscape design these days that I call them seven year landscape plans because they look great for the first couple of years, but then once the plants actually grow in, they're all so spaced so closely and they get so crowded. It just looks like a jungle after seven years. And mm-hmm. uh, it's time to kind of get things out and start again. And I personally don't like the idea of that. I, I like seeing a, a landscape really mature, over a very long period of time, those to me have always been the more interesting landscapes um especially when we go to i I go to parks and gardens and stuff like that. The older stuff is much more interesting than the new stuff new landscapes
4: mhm, and if it doesn't have the space to to grow to its potential, then it's sort of you know you're depriving yourself and the plant of a really good experience um by overcrowding things i know what you're talking about and some landscapers even plant in a two year plan in which after yeah. two years it just it looks horrible um yeah. just a and i in water gardening because plants do grow so so quickly one of the biggest recommendations that i make is that you start with fewer varieties and get more of them um, you know, when you try to put 10, 11, 12 different varieties in a small pond, you don't get the English garden effect. It just doesn't seem to happen in the water ever, um, in part right. because it's not as much flowering material. It's more green. So you have to rely, if you look at Japanese and, and, and Asian culture, where they use form, shape, texture, um, and in the water garden, that's particularly important, or it ends up looking like a, a weedy mess. Very quickly, yeah. it doesn't take five years, it can take one growing season. So, less is yeah. more. Um, three yes. to five varieties, but use more of them, mass them together so that they don't compete with each other or become a tangled, mangled mess.
0: Yeah,
2: go for the long term plan. Um, You know, one piece of advice that I heard you you giving out at um, Shindemonium when you were talking to the attendees there that was interesting to me um, is that people chronically use the wrong size containers for their aquatic plants. And a lot of that has to do with how they come to market, where you can see plants that are are sold, water lilies, sold in four-inch containers Iris in four-inch containers, um, eight-inch, ten-inch, and you were pretty much saying start with a sixteen-inch container.
4: Just you yeah, know, a sixteen-inch reali- container in a water feature is the smallest container, except for very small ponds. That's the smallest pot we use. Um, okay. If they don't have adequate soil mass, and and beside the fact that they won't stand upright because a 4-inch pot won't hold them in an upright position for for more than a few minutes. Um, 16-inch, we use 20-inch, 23-inch, 36-inch. And one of the jokes that we always make is that we have to go to a botanic garden to see what our plants look like. As a grower... You have a lot of considerations and transportation, weight, um, how much you can fit. Shipping costs are extremely high when you're dealing with aquatic plants because of the weight involved. We'll have pallets stacked loads. They'll be 1,100, 1,200, 1,300 pounds for one stacked skid. Um, So weight is a big issue. Size is a big issue. So from a grower's perspective to maximize the shipping costs, you know, and the space, you know, required um for retail display as well, a smaller container is is appropriate. Um right. and it's manageable, it's handleable. If you sold all of your water lilies in your garden center at sixteen inch pots, they are heavy. And big, yeah. so they take up too much space. So it's not appropriate from a retail perspective. But when it goes home with you, it needs to be given, you know, a place that is sufficient to support its growth for that growing season.
0: Right.
2: So so hobbyists need to keep in mind that when they're purchasing these plants, these are really temporary holding containers for retail purposes, and they should be bringing home their plants and repotting them into an appropriately sized container. Um yeah. what is what is the what's the best potting material that people should be looking for? Because there there are things on the market like aquatic um plant soil that you can you can buy prepackaged. Um and then I've heard other people say, you know, what, we just use screened um topsoil, you know, farm grade yeah. screened topsoil. What,
4: what do you recommend? I'm going to address one thing first on the water lily. I've been doing this since 1986. In all of this time, the single most frequently asked question that I still get today, that I got all the way back in 1986, is why my water lily doesn't flower. And it's always because it's in too small of a pot and inadequately fed. So container size has everything to do with the health, the the, the flowering capacity, you know, the disease resistance, the the pest resistance is all going to have, is going to be affected by the size container that you put it in. Um, And when they're in pots that are too small, they're undernourished, starved, strangling, you know, suffocating, however which words you want to use. So larger containers are, are... It's a requirement to the health of the whole ecosystem, I guess you could say. Um, Uh, As for soil, we use sifted topsoil, a good grade sifted topsoil that is part clay and subsoil and part topsoil. Patrick Nutt at Longwood Gardens always said if you can squeeze the soil in your hand and it will form a ball – but when you press it gently, it breaks apart. You have a good mix. If it's okay. too dense, too rich in organic matter, too much clay, it's not going to have that that ability to, to hold together and break apart. Um, it can have some compost, but things that are too rich in organic matter underwater will ferment. So you don't want a lot of manure or peat moss, which would also float, but it will also ferment underwater, Um, too much, I don't remember what they just said, compost, you don't want too much rich material. 10 to 15% is all you would want to add to amend your soil if you think that your topsoil is too, you know, nutrient-deplete. You can cut your soil with a little bit of sand if it's too heavy on the clay side um nice. it, you know add a little bit of organic matter a little bit of sand but it makes your tools and dividing and maintaining them at the sand cuts the blade it it dulls your your tools so plant maintenance becomes more difficult when you cut it with sand nice. more recently you can use you can use cat litter Um, unscented, non-clumping, but even better than that is what is more often than not used as the aquatic planting soil, which is a hardened clay product called calcined clay. And calcined clay is heated to a higher temperature than cat litter. It looks like cat litter, feels like cat litter, but it's heated to a higher temperature. Um, It's cleaner it has dust associated with it because it's a stone product but it doesn't um it's not like dirt and there's no organic matter but it's also nutrient deplete so you have to rely more on fertilizer um but if okay. koi get into it and stuff it doesn't make a big mess and you can recycle it it's 100% recyclable you can replant with it later um but you will have okay. to add fertilizer more frequently
2: when it comes to fertilizer, and you say more frequently, first let's talk about what what type of fertilizer do you recommend, and then let's talk about the frequency of it. Because fertilizer comes in liquid, tablet. What do you think is the most effective way to uh, fertilize a plant, are, are there, or do you use a combination of all of
4: these? We use a combination of two things. We don't use anything liquid because it's, I guess, it's, sort of minuscule in the grand scheme of things um, if you're really looking to improve plant growth. We use a granular slow-release fertilizer that was actually designed um, and intended for use in the rice paddies. It's actually imported from Japan. So it uh, is intended for underwater use. Years ago we learned a valuable lesson In using Osmocote, which is entirely temperature release, um, what happened was we didn't have enough fertilizer early, and when the temperatures got really warm enough for the fertilizer to release, we had too much too late and burned up a lot of things. So we use a granular release that's intended for underwater use. Um, I think you can buy it. Well, I know that you can buy it from Aquascapes, under a private label, um, you know, Aquascape's brand. And then I believe it's also available retail as a product called Dynamite. And it's actually tomato fertilizer is the same one that they use for aquatic plants. Oh,
2: that's interesting.
4: Okay. And if you add it to a plant, say now, you're going to divide your plants in the fall um or say september we shouldn't say now and everything will be ready for you in spring you can feed with that fertilizer in the fall and it won't release until next year when the temperatures creep up it has a different polymer coating although it's also temperature release it's not entirely it's it's being withheld in part by moisture but um So that works really well. We add to that um, spring and summer tablet fertilizer. We, um, as employees of the nursery, are a bit lazy gardeners because we work in a nursery. Um, We do our plant maintenance early or late in the fall um, and feed it up heavy so that it is nice, healthy, happy, vigorous, um, and then we don't fool with them again. So in a 16 inch pot, I might I put seven tablets and a good handful of slow release fertilizer, which is a lot. Okay.
2: And that um, all goes in so the bottom of the container.
4: We put that. We put an inch or so of soil, and then the fertilizer, and then more soil, and then the plant, and the finishing of the you know the rest of the planting. We find that the fertilizer is in contact with the plastic on the bottom of the pot, that the plant roots, that's where they go. And then you can get some burning of the roots when it's in direct contact. So if it's a little bit separated by the soil, uh, it seems to work out better, and the plants like it better. They can surround and engulf the fertilizer rather than come in direct contact with it.
2: Okay. So we we put together a good plan for a water garden. We got the the right location, the right depth, the right size. Now, what um what should people consider when they're choosing plants? Is there anything that they should be looking for to make sure that they're getting a high-quality plant and they're not bringing um home anything that, you know, is not going to perform for them?
4: Yeah, that's probably one of the biggest complaints we get at the nursery is someone bought something from a box store that was in a plastic container with some dry peat moss, and it looked okay because it had some green things coming out of it, but it died. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So we look for good... As standard horticultural practice would define, you want to look for something that is currently healthy and vigorous and productive, Um, you know, rather than something that's in a sealed container. It's aquatic, and it needs light and water to really be happy. So little plastic boxes, we try to avoid them. Um, We'll have people come and they'll say, but I bought four of them, and it cost me $33, and you want me to pay $33 for one. And I said, but the difference is the $33 you spent is dead.
0: Yeah.
4: (laughs) So this $33 is going to give you a beautiful water lily with lots of flowers and leaves. Um, It's going to live for you. Yes, it's going to live, and it's going to be healthy and happy because it got off to a good start. Um. You know, everything that you produce uh, as a crop, if it if it starts out weak, it ends up weak. Um, yeah. You know, there are a lot of times you can salvage a plant and give it a little TLC and it'll come along and make it just fine. Um, but that shouldn't be the norm for what you're looking for. You know, you want to look for plants that are healthy, pest-free, disease-free, vigorous, have all signs of being, you know looking like yeah. they're going to be productive. It's pretty so visually a be- evident.
2: A beginner water gardener, um what would you what would be three plants that you would recommend to any beginner water gardener for ease of keeping and also to make sure that it keeps their interest and grows their interest in water gardening?
4: as long as they have 4 to 6 hours of sunlight you know so sufficient light absolutely a water lily um first and foremost they're you know the queen of the pond they're the the gem the main attraction the um you know the color and the shade and you know where your fish hide and play and um so a water yeah. lily would definitely be one um iris I would say um, okay. they're sturdy, they're tolerant, you know, not difficult to take care of. Um, they'll flower in the spring. I'm a strong advocate of having plants that give you interest in throughout the growing season. So right. I always try to pick, if I'm going to only pick three, something that's spring, something that's summer, and maybe something that flowers later, um, you know, or an early season, late season. Plants have their seasons in part, the gentleman earlier asked about algae. If all of your plants are really in their prime in the early spring, you're going to tend to have heavier algae blooms in the later summer because those plants that were very... um, vigorous in the spring, have slowed down and are resting by the time it comes to summer, and algae being opportunistic is going to jump in there. Um, if all of your plants are summer flowering, you're going to be more prone to, you know, heavier algae blooms in the spring. So you want to cover the seasons with your plants so that you have something actively consuming nutrients, you know, early and late, and cover that. That. um right. That growing season as much as possible so yes. there are things one of my favorite plants and it's one of the most difficult ones to sell because it doesn't flower until late august or early september is um, zephyranthes the rain lily and when everything right. else is just really tired and and you know settling in for the end of summer and fall is approaching and rain lily is just really getting geared up and started and happy little faces just you know in the middle of uh, of all of that tiredness here comes the rain lily so it's one of my favorites absolutely of course lotuses but i don't know that i'd give that to the beginner and probably pickerel you know pickerel you know grows and blooms most of the summer yes so great plant. it covers all your seasons but I gave you four instead of three.
2: (laughs) That's quite all right. I think the listeners will enjoy that extra little tip, and I think we put together a good plan for anybody who's into or planning to get into water gardening. And uh, believe it or not, the time has really kind of flown by, and I just want to thank you so much for coming on tonight, Kelly. This is is awesome. I appreciate your time and sharing this great information. Um, I mean, really, thank you so much for coming on this evening and being a guest.
4: Well, I'm really glad that I could because I think that um, you know, as the industry grows and and the standard that we have is is that sharing is is part of the fun. It's what we like the most, anyway. It's what I like the most. I want other people yeah. to get as much enjoyment out of it as we do, and make it as less complicated as possible. So,
2: right, and I'm I'm you glad you that. had me. Well, um, I look forward to having you on again, and I will plan on catching up with you soon. And, again, thank you so much for coming on tonight, Kelly. All right. Thanks, Mike. Okay. Have a great evening. That was Kelly Billing, everybody, aquatic plant expert, speaker, author, and a great guest. You can find her on Facebook, and she works at Maryland Aquatics as a sales and marketing coordinator. Her books are Lotus, Know It and Grow It and the Water Gardener's Bible. They can both be found on Amazon.com. And I'm so glad she came on tonight to share her knowledge. I hope she'll be back. I'm sure she will. Thanks again, Kelly. We'll see you next time. You know, it seems like so many things in this life tend to come full circle, including water gardening. The cultivation of aquatic plants began as a way for us to eat. It was a means of survival, and it evolved into a – pursuit of pleasure, and now in modern times, our pursuit of pleasure in water gardening is seeing a resurgence in aquatic plant cultivation for food by way of aquaponics. And through aquaponics, we again are beginning to cultivate aquatic plants for our enjoyment, but still for the added benefit of being able to consume them, harvest them from our water gardens, and enjoy fresh, healthy foods right outside our back door and uh aquaponics is definitely a topic we'll be getting into um here on the PHRB in some later episodes. So before you run out and start eating your pond, there's a there's a lot of info info you'll need to know. So you got to stay tuned for an upcoming episode on aquaponics and um one food from the water garden I would love to try is lotus chips. I haven't tried that yet. You know, the lotus, like we talked about, the root, seeds, leaves, even the stems are all edible. And um, lotus seeds can even, even be dried, popped, like we do to popcorn, or, or eaten raw, of course. And the young leaves and stems can be mixed into salads. And uh, the versatile root can be used in soups, can make a chip, tasty snack chip really some good stuff. Um, And, you know, since we're heading into a major eating holiday, how about surprising your guests with something really different like lotus chips? Um, To make lotus chips, i got a quick recipe for you. Easy ingredients. You need a six to eight inch lotus root that you're going to slice up. You need the juice of a Myers lemon, half a cup of water, and three teaspoons of olive oil. And then you season it with coarse Sea salt, and some crushed red pepper flakes to taste, and I like a lot of those. They're simple, delicious, fresh ingredients, and here's what you do. You preheat your oven to 450. You slice the root across, not lengthwise, but across into one inch inch thick pieces. You mix your lemon juice with water. You soak those sliced roots in the lemon juice for five to eight minutes, then quickly dry the slices, spread them on a cookie sheet, drizzle with olive oil, Add your salt and pepper to taste and bake it for 20, 25 minutes and uh, flip them about halfway through and serve them up. It'll be a great snack for your guests, Uh, delicious, wholesome, fresh, and right-from-your-backyard water garden. Uh, Remember, folks, coming up Saturday, November 22nd, Pond Building 101 with American Aquascapes in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, 919-942-7848. We'll get you your reservation for that. And coming up in the next show, my guest will be Charles B. Thomas. We'll be talking about water gardening history and the development of the industry in the United States. He'll be joining me on December 3rd, so be sure to tune in. Winter's here. Get those aerators and deicers installed, please. It is officially that time of year. Let's avoid any heartbreak for our aquatic plant uh, pets or destruction of our equipment. And remember, we're not deicing; we're degassing. Um, you guys can catch upon onto radio broadcast episodes on iTunes and blogtalkradio.com. Um, please check them out. Leave me a review and a rating. I appreciate your help. You can follow me on Facebook and on Twitter where I just passed 1,000 followers. So I'm very happy that uh, you guys are starting to uh, catch on there. And let's see that number grow. You can check out the Love Your Pond blog at loveyourpond.com and you can subscribe to the blog and my newsletter. And I hope you all know about my YouTube channel. I just posted a brand new video from a project I did out in Las Vegas. So please go check that out. I look forward to seeing you guys all next time. I'm going to leave you with the song, and I hope you all have a very, very nice holiday season. And this one is for Megan.
5: My baby's gone, she often left me She don't come around my house no more She done done her wrong, now she's gonna forget me Wish she was still lying in my arms See my heart burn when I first saw her She could float across the room just like a dog I opened up the window I had lost her. She flew off along the way from a tired love. Yeah, my baby's gone. She often left me. She don't come around my house no more. Should've done her wrong. Now she's gonna forget me. Wish she was still lying in my arms. I couldn't contain myself She was finer than porcelain But after seven years I began to retain myself And now she's farther away from me Than she has ever been Yeah, my baby's gone She often left me She don't come around my house no more I've done her wrong. Cause now she's gonna forget me. Wish she was still lying in my arms. Everywhere my two feet will go With her picture hidden in my pocket I carry on quietly and slow Now I live my days a walking shadow Colorblind from all the world Am I not? since the day I've been without the girl My baby's gone, she often left me She don't come around my house no more Shouldn't have done her wrong Cause now she's gonna forgive me Wish she was still lying in my arms
1: Been listening to the Pond Hunter radio broadcast on Blog Talk Radio with your host, Mike Gannon, The Pond Hunter. In the pursuit of all things aquatic, broadcasting Wednesday nights on Blog Talk Radio. The Pond Hunter, keeping it pondy for the aquatically obsessed.
2: Good night, everybody, and I hope you have a wonderful Thanksgiving with your friends and family. God bless. Keep the people you love close to you. And uh, we'll see you next radio broadcast. Be sure to tune in and uh, take care, everybody. Have a good night.